Professor Anagur, welcome um, to this podcast. Uh, really excited to have you here. And um, just on behalf of Fire Affairs, we just want to thank you for um, your time and for um, just coming in today and, and giving us your expertise. Um, we're really excited to, to have you. And, and of course, given all the, the, the history that we have back at Uwaterloo, I'm especially excited to do this here with you. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really, really rewarding to see, you know, to, to have this kind of conversation with, you know, with somebody who goes way back with me to the University of Waterloo, even though I think you're one of the few students that I did not teach out of political science uh, during our years there, which is a rare thing. I don't know how you squeak through the, uh, squeak through the netting there. I don't know how either, but I definitely still managed to pester you very often during your office hours. It probably took away some precious time from students who were who actually were taught by you. So sorry. <laughs> ah, doesn't matter. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so uh, I guess just, you know, before um, we, we kick this off, we talked a little bit about uh, how things have been a little bit uh crazy with with the pandemic and and everything's just sort of been strange times and strange and um I think one thing that was especially for me at least it, it was strange to think that there was an entire election that was going on in in 2020 um and the, the fact that we have an entire new enti- like a an, like an entirely new um uh, administration um over in the United States is is sometimes is a little bit um shocking um given you know when we were when we were in the years of, of the Trump administration, how, you know, that was something that, that really consumed a, a lot of us that um, were really uh, in deep into politics or in the political sphere, or even people outside of it. Um, so I guess um, just, you know, as, as an international relations um, expert, particularly um, for American and Canadian policy, um, what, what, what sort of, um, uh, I guess thoughts or ideas have you observed about um, the Biden administration and, and particularly how their foreign policy now going going into, I guess you know the almost the second year of, of the the administration being there, um, how it's distinct to the Trump administrations. Yeah, so in when Biden came into office, the great hope was that he was going to be different, right? That he was going to hit the easy button and relations between the United States and the rest of the world, including Canada, would all of a sudden become really collaborative and cooperative and everything would be fantastic. And we proceed as we had before. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that there's a huge gap between what was, you know, those kinds of expectations and the reality. And that expectations gap is not one that we should be surprised exists. You know, Trump in office, you know, embraced nationalism and protectionism and antagonism towards the international liberal order. Uh, And Joe Biden seemed to campaign on the opposite of Trump. But now in office, Joe Biden has kept many of those protectionist measures. He has played the game of economic nationalism, even while gesturing towards a more cooperative, collaborative system of you know, liberal international order and building and multilateralism. And the problem, the great challenge for countries like Canada is finding a place within America's new vision of itself, right? And that vision of itself that the United States has under Biden is one that is multilateralist in its preferences, but 
the U.S. is not shy to hit the unilateralism button and play towards its own national interests. So finding an opportunity to leverage whatever, uh, you know, whatever you can in that environment is an enormous challenge for a country like Canada. Okay. Yeah, I think that that is quite interesting. Just um, the idea of um, how Canada as a country now has to posture itself, um, I guess, in a way, because again, like I think um, you you sort of alluded to the idea of um, the Biden or the general idea that, you know, um, things would sort of go back to a sense of like status quo, but um, it's interesting that it seems like there's a distinction that we have, like Canada has to find as a, as a country um, when it comes to establishing themselves on a foreign policy front. Could you speak a little bit more to that, do you think? Sure. I mean, Canada is a really interesting country and it is a really interesting country, country in its foreign policy as well. Right. In large part because Canada is pulled between a bunch of different, you know, imperatives Right. There's always the national interest, defending Canada's physical security, looking out for its own economic security, all that kind of, you know, the national interest stuff we associate with, you know, with like kind of that realist worldview. At the same time, however, Canada shares a continent with the, you know, the, the greatest military and economic power that there has ever been. And it's very difficult to, you know, conduct yourself without reference to the United States. And at the same time, all of this is nested within the broader multilateral order that Canada has been a part of since the end of World War II. So, you know, being pulled between multilateralism globally, continentalism within North America, and looking out for your own national interests forces Canada to awkwardly balance a lot of different imperatives. Uh, and sometimes they align and sometimes they do not. You know, an example of where they do not align is in economics. Okay. Canada loves the rules-based international order, but fundamentally Canada's economic prosperity is tied to access to the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. So Canada is going to push extraordinarily hard to make sure that Canada still gets access to the United States market even if it comes at the cost of, um, of, of North American protectionism, yeah. right? So rules that favor Canada's national economic interests uh, sometimes mean setting aside global multilateralism if it means protecting Canada's economic interests on the continent. That's it. I mean, that's just one example. There are many, many other examples, but it's part of the game that Canada has to play as a small-ish to mid-sized country within the American uh, within the American system. Okay. Yep. Um, I think that is quite. Um, I, I guess that is quite interesting. I, I think, given the um, the economic example. Um, in particular, um, I think uh, one thing that was really uh, that that was quite significant, um, uh, like during the the when when Trump was uh, when the Trump administration was was still um, active was um, negotiations for um, the Canada U.S. Mexico agreements and and there was so much hostility I think in those negotiations um, that we saw in the press as well. Um, do you think that uh, it's do you think that even even based off of that example, that it's something that um, is 
like do you do you perceive something of i i guess that sort of hostility coming into play like with with this administration or do you feel like it, it's more of where we're sort of inching back to to something that that is business as usual well it's interesting because there are two things going on at once when it mm-hmm. comes to those big kind of free trade negotiation deals there's right. the relationships between the leaders that we all see in in public and then there is the stuff that's going on below the surface, right? And the stuff that goes on below the surface is extraordinarily important, even though we don't see much about it. So, you know, let's take both sides there. Trump and Trudeau could have hated each other, but we still got the USMCA out of that set of negotiations in 2018 to 2019 or, or, or whenever it was. And that's because the you know, the negotiators, the high level bureaucrats are all, you know, professional at what they do. And they all recognize that this is an extraordinarily important thing to accomplish. Uh, Certainly in the United States, the kind of aggressiveness of its economic nationalism uh, was evident in the way some of those more prominent negotiators like Robert Lighthizer uh, performed his public duties. Uh, But that's not out of the ordinary. I mean, I just got finished reading a book about the Canada-US free trade negotiations in the 1980s. And, you know, Canada's chief negotiator, there was a real hard charging, no BS kind of guy who delighted the news media because he gave them great quotes and lots of energy. And he was a real character. Right. Mm. So, so in this regard, like, you know, what happened in 2018 kind of has interesting echoes of what was going on in the mid 1980s. So there's a great deal of continuity in this Mm -hmm. North American relationship. It still works, right? The political dynamics at the very top can ease the process. It's especially, you know, especially when the, uh, when the president and the prime minister get along very well. Uh, but just because they don't get along doesn't mean the North American relationship is going to collapse. You know, Canada and the U.S. have been together forever, yeah. uh, and the, you know the the, re- the relationship is much deeper than what we see in the headlines, and that's really right. important to remember. Right, right, yeah. I think um, uh, the point that uh, you made about um, like uh, negotiations in the 1980s, sort of um, echoing, uh, I guess, some of the the more, you know, um, like, uh, shocking news, news sort of waves and, and having like, a I guess, um, a, an interesting chief negotiator, I think is quite interesting and, and sort of, um, maybe alludes to, um, uh, as you mentioned, like your last point, um, thinking about, um, Canadian U.S. relations in like a larger context outside of, um, I guess, particular presidencies. It's just because I think, um, the, the Trump presidency and now the Biden pres- presidency are so potent and, and so, you know, um, just, just what we're, what we're dealing with now or have been dealing with, you know, in, in our, um, more recent past that it seems like it's so distinct. Um, so I think, would you just be able to speak a little bit to, um, like a history of, of just our, like Canada's relationship to the U S and sort of, um, I guess if if now looking forward in the future, um, if that relationship will be different, given that we are, I guess, in different times, or it seems like we are sort of in, in a different sphere of operating on an international level. 
Yeah, I mean, things always change, except yeah. when they don't, right? Now, if we look across the, the grand sweep of Canada-US history, we can see you know, plenty of continuities as, alongside change. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if we step back and look at the full scope of Canada-US relationships on this continent, it's really a story of these two societies inching closer and closer together over the centuries, right? Mm -hmm. And bo both countries started as, uh, as, as colonies of, uh, of European powers, mm -hmm. right? By the time the Americans declared their independence, those 13 colonies were only 13 of a bunch more British colonies in yeah. North America and the Caribbean. Uh, but over time, the story of Canada and the United States has been one of getting, you know, inching, inching closer and closer together. And, you know, we can, we can date these back to anything, you know, to many different particular events, but the one that sticks out in my mind is 1846. And all you economic historians listening, and I know you're listening, you know that this is when the British repealed the Corn Laws, which had given Canada you know, imperial preference, right? Canada, Canadian agricultural producers could know, you know, could luxuriate in the knowledge that they were selling their grains to the mother country. But all of a sudden, you know, London forces Canadian producers to compete on the global free markets. Uh-oh, we better start inching towards that colossus to the south. And over the years, there have been attempts at reciprocity agreements and free trade agreements. And these things really started to pick up steam you could say in the 1930s, right, when Congress adopted the reciprocal trade agreement, which was really one of the, like the first free trade agreement between the United States and Canada. And these things slowly built upon one another after World War II. There was the GATT in, in, in the late 1940s. In the 1960s, there was the Auto Pact. By the 1980s, we see these comprehensive free trade agreements coming into force. 1994, NAFTA brings Mexico into it. And then, and this is amazing, by 2018, when the USMCA is being negotiated, it is almost uncontroversial in Canada that continental integration is a desirable thing. And that's to me is one of the most, most remarkable features of this moment that we are in, that economic integration with the United States really does not have any significant mainstream political opposition, not, not on the left with, uh, you know, the NDP or unions, uh, not on the right with, uh, with, with, with Canadian nationalists. It is largely a commonsensical feature of 21st century uh, Canadian life that we are deeply integrated with the Americans and when access to the American market is threatened. Everybody gets in line. It's a Team Canada full, you know, full court press kind of effort to maintain the status quo at very least. Right. In 2018, when all those negotiations were going on, uh, that seemed to be the priority. Like maintain NAFTA at very least, update it if you can, but at very least preserve. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a viable status quo. Okay, interesting, huh? Um, so I, I guess just 
maybe just zooming i i think uh is i'm trying to i'm just trying to um grasp like uh if if there's any sort of um re or what sort of um like strict i guess why is it um why is there like a strategic um, or do you, do you think there is a strategic benefit or why is there a strategic benefit um, to preserving that relationship? I mean, I think intuitively it makes sense, right? Because our, our markets are so deeply tied together. Um, but uh, I guess just even, even on a policy front, like uh, if uh, sometimes, you know, um, you have words that don't necessarily match actions, but it seems like from from what you you've recounted throughout history, it seems like actions match words here in terms of wanting to preserve the status quo and then following through with preserving said status quo. What what is our strategic advantage there? Um, and do you think that's that's going to change? Given, I think the maybe the 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 skewed perception of of the U.S. now, given the context of everything that's been going on. Well, I mean, the 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 strategic advantage of having access to the American market is uh, is that you know seventy five percent of Canada's exports go to the United States. Yeah, right? Canada's prosperity prosperity is tied to access to the American market. You know, Canada has free trade agreements and does business with other countries around the world, but none come anywhere close to the role that the United States plays in Canada's economic life. And so, you know, that access perhaps isn't so much a matter of strategic uh, benefit as it is, you know, a necessity of, for, you know, a, a necessary condition for, for Canadian prosperity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it is when that is threatened, as I said, it is job number one for Canadian policymakers to preserve it. We can see what's going on right now in the United States. Like we're recording this on the same day as the Three Amigos Summit, right? The you know, cheekily titled Three Amigos Summit. And the agenda right now is for Canada or the Canada's agenda right now is principally to push back against the, the, the creeping tide of protectionism in American legislation. Right? Biden's agenda, uh, you know, domestic economic agenda and international agenda includes um, protectionist measures. And while we can debate the relative merits of the, of the, of the actual measures, in many cases, they are harmful to specific Canadian interests. Like something that disrupts the auto industry uh, in Canada is one that affects the lives of lots and lots of people in Southwest Ontario and in Quebec, and um, is a matter of economic security in Canada as well as uh, you know electoral political pol- uh, political matters in Canada. So it behooves you know, Team Canada to go down to the United States and find as many pressure points as they can and push as, you know, reasonably as they can to ensure that Canada's interests are included in the way the United States ultimately crafts its, uh, its economic legislation. 
we could, you know, is that a grand strategic thing? Maybe, but it, it, we should also think about it as part of the day-to-day management of mm-hmm. North American life. It's not the kind of stuff that gets the sexy headlines, uh, but it is fundamental to Canada's prosperity. Uh, and the more I think, more I think Canadians appreciate just how much, um, just how much work has to go into preserving this relationship. Uh, the more we're gonna, we, the more we appreciate just how necessary the United States is to Canadian life. Right, right, yeah. That I think, um, I think, <clears throat> sorry, the that idea of um, uh, the the idea of like preserving uh, the relationship as a whole um, is is quite interesting, um, and I think that uh, outside of just economic. Um, interests um I'm, I'm just curious as to whether or not um you're seeing or, or whether or not um you think that there's like a, a i guess a, a sense of protectionism or, or protectionist uh policies you know not necessarily economically based but that that sort of like um that sort of thinking or those values that are being translated into other aspects of of um american foreign policy and whether or not that's having any sort of impact um, on Canada as a whole. So like, you know, um, from like a security lens, let's say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little too soon to tell if the kind of new Biden-esque, uh, protectionism is going to have an effect beyond, but we can already see his approach to things like environmental regulation, climate change, having an effect on other foreign policy files. For example, uh, Biden has made it a priority to lead on climate change issues. Part of that includes, part of that includes, um, you know, green policies in the United States and, you know, otherwise protectionist measures to, uh, you know, improve the standing of, uh, of environmentally friendly regulation within the United States, but also compel other countries to alter their domestic regulations in order to kind of rise to the level of the United States. It's sort of the opposite of the race to the bottom phenomenon of the 1990s yeah. when countries raced to deregulate in order to compete on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Biden in, in, his, in, in his campaign talked about leveraging the American um, America's market power to kind of force a race to the top, so to speak. So if access to the American market depends on your country having an acceptable level of labor or environmental protections, then theoretically this would raise the overall level of um, regulatory concern for those you know, salient issues. It's a really kind of interesting way of doing uh, doing statecraft in the 21st century. It's too soon to tell if it works, but we can see, you know, inklings of this uh, taking place in the way he talks about the way, the way Biden has sought to bring countries together through, you know, the climate summit from a couple of months ago. Uh, all of the sort of drama that we heard about this week about the electric vehicles subsidies in the United States is, is part of that dynamic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, 
we don't have to get into the details of it, but you know, other countries have the option of matching the kinds of subsidies that the United States is putting in force in order to, uh, you know, in, in, in order to protect their own access to the United States by matching those regulatory standards. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting. And that's one example of how this kind of economic statecraft spills over or has implications for other foreign policy issue areas. And to see it as a comprehensive whole is to understand, is to understand how Joe Biden is going about his foreign policy, at least in this first year. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I think just, I mean, on, to be honest, I think uh, if you were to tell me like two or three years ago that, um, uh, you know, um, America would, or the US would, would be um, trying to at least, you know, paying at the very least paying lip service to such progressive climate initiatives i mean it, it would have just been like what you know it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a transformation it's quite a shift um i guess just uh, on that note um is um the the progressiveness of, of these policies and and the biden administration's platform on not just climate change but a, a lot of other issues or social issues in particular um it sort of indicates what seems to me a, a shift in in the way that um, uh, policies reflecting perhaps uh, views or or the way that things have changed. We've also seen um, a significant amount of um, new, more progressive uh, political figures come into prominence over over the years uh, or recent history, like um, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, let's say, for example. So um, I guess from your perspective, um, how, what sort of, uh, how, 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 how do you perceive um, America's um, foreign policy initiatives uh, shifting to, to more progressive fronts? Uh, I guess the climate change in general is a good example, but um, on, on a broad level, how do you, how do you sort of perceive that? Or what do you think about but, it? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you look. Uh, you can see the sort of leftward tilt of Biden's foreign policy in some areas more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, got to keep hammering here on, on the economic policy front because that is where this sort of leftward shift is the most apparent, right? Biden's foreign policy for the middle class, unquote, it was kind of his, um, you know, that, 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 that was the standard that he, that he carried around uh, throughout the presidential campaign, along with the whole build back better paradigm that seems to have been embraced around the world, like Trudeau parrots it, Boris Johnson parrots it. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that the details of all that stuff is basically cribbed from the ac economic platforms of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, right? Mm. So Warren being a progressive and Sanders being a leftist. They're different things, but they share some similarities. And Biden saw you know, an opportunity to borrow heavily from those two platforms. Now, he does, he has embraced protectionism, right? Elements of protectionism in the same kind of way that Donald Trump embraced protectionism. Yeah. But, you know, the right-wing protectionism of Donald Trump is different from the leftist or leftish protectionism of, uh, of Joe Biden. We got to understand the purposes behind all of these things in order to in order to distinguish these different types of protectionism unto itself. For you know, for Biden's sake, 
all of these left-leaning economic foreign policies are geared towards making life easier for the American middle class, right? New infrastructure spending, protections against, you know, non-union stuff made overseas. The whole point is that economic policy should be beneficial to the American middle class. It's a, you know, it's a straight up kind of populist middle class platform that, you know, he borrowed from Sanders and Warren, maybe even a little mm-hmm. bit from, from Donald Trump, uh, coupled with big domestic reinvestments, like the big infrastructure spending uh, program. All of this stuff is designed to shore up uh, the, the domestic foundations of American foreign policy. Okay. You know, to put it more simply, regular Americans get very, very skittish about the world when they're out of, a, when they're out of work. Yep. Right? And if lots and lots of Americans are out of work or feel economically insecure, it undercuts and it undermines their support for other global initiatives that an American president might take. So, you know, you got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time if you're a president of the United States. You have to be able to ensure domestic stability and prosperity, all the while engaging internationally mm-hmm. as the leader of the free world. Yep. That is not an easy line to walk. And it takes an extraordinary amount of skill to do both of these things all at once. Now, if you look at other parts of the American foreign policy file, mm-hmm. uh, you can see how the leftward shift is not you know, especially evident. Uh, you know, take a look at national security. I mean, Biden has, you know, is an American primacist. He wants the American military to be the, the strongest in the world, just like Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he regards China and Russia as strategic competitors. So did Donald Trump. You know, Biden wanted to end the endless wars, but so did Donald Trump. So did Elizabeth Warren. So did Bernie yeah. Sanders. There's nothing especially leftist about ending the endless wars. Perhaps, you know, the ultimate reason might have me be have different inflections depending on how you suss it out. But basically, this meant getting out of Afghanistan finally. And the United States did, uh, but nobody is celebrating especially hard about ending that endless war right now. In fact, most uh, Americans and Canadians, for that matter, would rather not talk about it. I mean, we can go on forever about, you know, parsing out what part of U.S. foreign policy has leftish flavors. Uh, but I think on those two, the economic and security files, we can see how it's left-ish depending on where you look. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think to, to, I mean, those are two very significant files. And I think that um, even the, the fact that there's been some sort of a shift or, or what you're perceiving as a shift here is, is quite um, interesting. Uh, I think uh, just applying that broadly, what, what do you think uh, for our current um, international liberal order as it stands? Uh, what do you think that means? I mean, I, I, I'm not asking you to predict the future here, but, but just based off of your, your own analysis and, and thinking, um, where do you see that going for the rest of you know, the, um, the Biden administration or, or over the long run? 
Well, I'm, glad you're not, I'm glad you're not asking me to predict the future here because that's the, if anyone could do it, it could be you. It would yeah, definitely right. be you, sir. It, well, if I had any <laughs> confidence in my predictions, I would take all my money to Las Vegas right now and, uh, and put it all down on, on red. I mean, so much about what happens a year, two, three, four from now depends on whether or not it works. Mm -hmm. Right. So much depends so much about the liberal international order depends on whether or not it can still provide benefits to its members and especially in the United States. So, you know, can the members of the liberal international order, at least the ones who want to be a part of it, continue to, you know, draw out economic benefits and stability from it? If it doesn't, then we might see a return to the kind of anti-internationalism uh, that was evident during, you know, the mid 2000 teens, right? With, you know, the rise of uh, the Trump phenomenon, uh, the Brexit phenomenon, the anti-EU kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All of these speak to grievances and hostilities and in, in some cases, legitimate skepticism about the viability of this system of liberal international ordering that came out of the Second World War. Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. a septuagenarian liberal international order. It can't last forever, can it? Well, I mean, maybe, as long as it still works. Will it change? Um, you know, perhaps a thousand years from now, but, you know, in the next five to 10 years, I don't know. I mean, there's a real incumbent advantage to the liberal international order because it's the system that exists, that is deeply entrenched, uh, that is still widely supported by many. And so that makes it very hard to displace. I think what's more interesting than the question of whether or not the liberal international order will survive is, uh, is how much more pluralistic the order is in the 2020s. Like what we've seen over the last two or three decades has been the proliferation of different orders, plural, right? The, the original, you know, liberal international order was set up pretty much to support the interests of the West, right? Uh, but over the last seven or eight decades, we've seen it expand. We've seen it add layers to it so much that it's very, very difficult to speak of a single order, and with new countries on the world stage over the past, you know, six or seven decades, uh, with more actors on the world stage, we see more and more interests uh, and more and more kind of more and more political activity overlapping in a, in a really, really crowded world. Whether or not the liberal international order can still provide common purpose and predictability and stability uh, remains to be seen. The great presumption in Joe Biden's foreign policy of restoration is that it is possible and that it is desirable. For Canada's sake, it is desirable and it is plausible, at least within you know some boundaries. Uh, but you know, perhaps not everybody wants American leadership. Perhaps other parts of the world beyond the West are interested in calling their own shots in their own neighborhoods. And so this is, you know, if we project forward 10 or 20 years, this is the kind of fragmentation of 
the liberal inter international order that might characterize, you know, our, our undergraduate textbooks, you know, into the future. Mm. You know, so in the 2020s, American foreign policy, uh, you know, needs to contend with a much, much more complicated global landscape than it has probably in many generations. Is Joe Biden up to that task? Well, he seems to recognize pluralization of world politics and the complex interdependencies. Can he, you know, bring along the rest of the country with him? Uh, right now, it's not looking all of that promising, or at least in my estimation. Mm -hmm. um, could you, do you think maybe you could elaborate just um, a little bit more on like, um, I guess the Biden administration's relationship to the the shifts that that um, you were you were speaking about, and sort of, I, I think that idea is so interesting that um, it's something that that is recognized, but but maybe is not something that, like it, the the question of whether or not it's something that can be acted on and and, and adapted to, um, mm -hmm. like it being ambiguous, I think is really interesting. So would you would you mind elaborating a little bit more? Sure, I mean. If we think about the liberal international order of the 1990s in particular, mm -hmm. it was truly global in scope. Fast forward 30 years and we have all different kinds of pockets of regional and sub-regional order. One of the most important ones has everything to do with the rise of China. Right? Mm -hmm. China, which, is, which, which, which made its transition to a superpower by playing the the rules of the liberal international order and, and, and global capitalism and trade and all that kind of stuff is now at a stage in its own emergence where it can say, hold up, we're gonna call the shots in our neighborhood now, right? Mm -hmm. So China mm -hmm. is now a real peer competitor to the United States, not only in the kind of one-on-one -on -one confrontation uh, that you know, we can see in flashpoints in the South China Sea and over Taiwan and all that kind of stuff, but also in China's own economic statecraft, right? Think about the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative that Xi Jinping has uh, uh, put forth over the last five or six years, right? This is an effort to create an economic system within, a, in particular, within uh, Central and East Asia and, South, and Southeast Asia, you know, basically Asia, that draws economic activity away from the West and towards China, right. right? Thereby creating a whole different kind of set of gravitational pulls that compete with the American gravitational pull, an economic order that is Sinocentric instead of America-centric. All that is taking place without any sort of, you know, grand conflagration on the world stage. Uh, like a World War II or hopefully not a World War III, it is one that is happening in subtle ways across multiple fronts in ways that you know take place below the level that would initiate armed conflict. Managing that extraordinarily complex set of transformations is part of the American foreign policy agenda. Right. And I don't think there's any template for that. I don't think you can look back in the history books in the you know, last 100 or 150 years and say, oh, those, that's a good playbook. That's, that's a good idea. We should run that program. Right? It requires a new set of foreign policy thinking to contend with uh, a regional order, a Chinese regional order that 
it is probably unprecedented in American history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine, and I think that it, it's it's interesting to see it all sort of, of play out in, in specific ways, and and even like the, I guess, the posturing that that you see through the media and the news about about uh, how how that's like uh, how the reactions to it um, by American politicians and prominent political figures and and perceptions to China now. Um, I one question that I did have was um, if you think there's anything specific about um, not not the administration in particular, but but Joe Biden that that would maybe ad, advantage or disadvantage um, uh, the considerations of, of these changes or these shifts um, in policy, like going forward, like specific, I, he, he's a career politician and, and somebody that's, you know, been playing the game for so long. So like, um, do you sort of, do you, do you perceive him to be up, up to the task just based on him and his personality and, and the way that, you know, he's, he's conducting his business now? I mean, he, probably, I mean, in, in terms of his own personality, he's, he seems to be content with getting out of the way. He doesn't seem to be all that interested in claiming, um, you know, claiming great political gains for himself. He certainly doesn't mm-hmm. mind being there in the photo op and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, in this, in all this regard, I'm thinking about, it's, it's hard to not compare him to Donald Trump, who wanted to be front and center and everything was his own, his, uh, you yeah. know, his initiative. But, you know, we got to get Trump out of our brains <laughs> at some point and, yeah. and, ass- and assess what's going on in the world on its own merits. I think another advantage the Biden administration has is that in pursuing this sort of restorationist foreign policy is that his foreign policy cabinet are all paid up fully committed members of uh, you know, the liberal international order establishment, if yeah. we can call it that. Like they, their agenda is to, preserve the existing order, improve upon it, repair damages created over the last five years, hey, maybe even the last 20 years. And in that regard, there is a commonality of purpose that probably didn't exist during the Trump years. So at least they have that going for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're not openly antagonizing other countries. Now, that's a pretty low bar to set. But you know, it wasn't me who set that bar so low <laughs> such is yeah. the nature of the game in 2021 yeah yeah definitely uh it's it's interesting that uh the stark comparison still sort of remain but it's it's interesting um uh your commentary on on like ha- really trying to pick it apart outside of everything that had happened during the like uh during the trump administration and the presidency because it's still so yeah like you said it's still so potent in our brains um so i, I think it's interesting um uh, just just before we wrap up, um, one thing that I, I really um, wanted to, I guess, get get your um, comments or, or your insights on in general was um, where where do you perceive um, both America and um, like Canada's place in all these shifts and changes? You know, everything just sort of feels very different and transformative. And I think a lot of this conversation was around that idea as well. So um, just going forward, where do you see both of both of both of the countries in terms of their their foreign policy posturing? Uh, (laughs) I think the Canadian Canadian position is probably easier to predict 
than the American okay. position. I mean, Canada is going to do its darndest to, you know, retain all of the benefits of this close bilateral relationship we have in North America for all the reasons I've already said. Yep. Canada will probably also try to maintain a sort of, uh, maintain its commitments to multilateralism. But that commitment to multilateralism has always existed within the boundary set by the American-led liberal international order. Mm -hmm. If the United States continues on that pathway towards promoting that kind of liberal international order, then uh, it'll be beneficial to Canada because the boundaries are knowable. If the United States all of a sudden makes a, a, a wild turn towards another Trump presidency in 2024, <laughs> um, are all bets off? Maybe. Uh, but I would anticipate another period of, uh, of, of holding your breath and watching other countries in the world try to hold the line and wait out Donald Trump. But that remains to be seen. 2024 is a very, very long way away. Uh, but, you know, we as foreign policy scholars and people interested in all that kind of stuff need to think beyond just the 24-hour news cycle and think yep. about implications all the way down the line. Yep, yep. Um, I think uh, it's it's just, it's quite interesting to think that um, it feels like there's a sort of restoration but it is on like thin ice um and it, it seems like our, the wrap-up is you know if if we continue on on thin ice then everything will be good the way that it is um but it's everything is still shakier it feels shaky absolutely and the thing about thin, uh, thin ice is you can't really predict when it's going to go indeed indeed okay i think um i think i'm going to wrap there so as not to uh, go over time too long um so i'll I'll, uh, I'll stop there and thank you again for joining us and for um, all of the insights and, and the discussion. It was really, um, as always, you know, um, just being in your office a few years ago during my undergraduate, uh, I was privy to these insights on a, on a more informal level. So it was just nice to have them captured like this and, and thank you for your time. It was really awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to catch up. Of course.